Amen. Well, I hope uh, we just meant what we just sang. A very fitting song as we move to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you'll join me there. Uh, I hope you have a Bible, be it on some kind of electrical, electronic device, and hopefully those were silenced uh, this morning. But if you have a, a leather and paper copy like I do, that's great as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we are going through the book of Matthew. Um, you hear that said sometimes verse by verse. Lately, it literally has been verse by verse, one verse a week, it seems like. Uh, but so, so for clarification, when we, when we preach expositionally, it doesn't mean that we're only hitting one book of the Bible for a couple of years. That's not, not what that means. Uh, today, as case in point, we'll be in 18 different passages, 10 different books, because we're going to deal with the text. And so normally I've been reading verses 3 through the newest one. Today we're just going to hit right on in for time's sake, verse 8. This is the sixth beatitude, all right? So if you'll join me, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 8. Blessed, we could say, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed, this is Jesus who's God who makes the rules. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And I could say it this way, what is the text really means, they shall see God and only they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is our sixth one of these. Uh, we've been doing them one at a time, didn't plan it that way. But we know by now, I hope, that what Jesus means by the word blessed, he means these are the fortunate people. These descriptions describe the approved kind of people. These are the happy people, and even if they're in a situation, they may not feel happy at the moment. What Jesus is saying, because he has the perspective that is right, he's saying they are in the happy place. And really, we could kind of summarize saying they, these who fit these descriptions, have the good life. And so I want us to have the good life. And so I hope that as we look at this this morning, this pure in heart, they shall see God, that the Lord will use this to challenge us. Now, here's a quick confession. This will be my introduction. I have struggled with this particular beatitude more than all the other five, almost combined to really understand its meaning. I've, I've struggled to grasp this one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And you may read that and say, I have no idea how in the world you're going to talk about that, that one verse, that one concept for a whole sermon. Well, you'll see as we go into it. This one, though, has been the hardest for me to grasp because here's where I struggle each week. I want to try to make the concepts of Scripture concise and simple. The, no preacher should ever have a goal to get up and sound fancy. Boy, wasn't that great. Yeah, that was awesome. Boy, that guy's really smart. What was it about? I don't know, but it was impressive. That's never the goal. The goal is really to get concise. We may have big thoughts. This one, I'm going to give you some reasons why I've struggled to really make this concise this morning. It's a confession. I'm preaching about purity, and the message is not as concise as it should be, and you'll see the paradox of that. And by concise, I mean focused. Uh, so why is this such a struggle? Let me offer the following. You ready? 
there seems to me as I read this, there's a lack of clarity of the timing. I struggle with that. Uh, let me explain. This purity. Is this a one-time event? There, they're pure in heart. Or when you read this, does your mind say, my mind goes more toward uh, a pursuit, uh, becoming pure in heart. So is this a one-time event? Is this a becoming pure in heart? Or is this really saying it's a future event when we get to heaven, then we'll be pure in heart? And some of you that have heard much Bible teaching and preaching or you've done much are now going, oh yeah, no, wait a minute, I do see how that, that, could, that could be a little problem. Secondly, part B, we always have we always have the beatitude and then we have the promise. Part B, when does this take place? When does this seeing God? And your mind, I know, goes immediately in one direction, but check yourself. Is this an option? Is the seeing God that the pure in heart see God, is it in this life? They see God by faith. Almost like in quotes, the pure in heart, they'll be the ones that see and experience God in life. Or are we talking about literally in heaven, they shall literally see God. Though God does have a body, they're going to be given a new version of a body with spiritual eyes, and they'll really see God in heaven. And so I'm like, oh, mercy, how am I going to cover this in one sermon? This is going to be crazy. And then you kick on the rest of the reason, the second reason why this was a hard to, to really grasp is this word heart. So I know we do this. We read our Bible. Blessed are pure in heart. They shall see God. That's great. Keep on moving. What is the heart? I believe that we are body, soul, and spirit. Maybe, I don't have time to dig in here. I'm going to throw out maybe this soul and spirit thing. Some believe that's just one. I kind of linger that it's, I kind of believe that it's two different things. Though they're very, very close. And maybe the Lord covers those with this word Heart. So I'm going to propose to you. I'm not going to make this a separate point just by way of introduction. I'm going to propose to you that when Jesus uses the word heart, what he's saying is the whole inner person. The whole of you. Your whole inner person. When that is pure, you'll see God. The whole inner person, what that means is your heart, your very thoughts are pure. Your feelings, pure. Your desires, what do you desire? Pure. Your motives, pure. Your will, this is what I will go after that. Your will is pure. Your motives are pure. Your desires, your thoughts, even your feelings. Now, even as you're writing those words, if you can write and track at the same time, you're starting to see, whoa, this is kind of troubling. Blessed are the pure. Hold on, Lord what level of purity are you talking about? If this is true and the heart represents our thoughts and our feelings and our desires and our motives, our very will, what we will to go after, then who is pure? This sounds impossible. And then I go back and I factor that. Oh Lord, when is this purity taking place? Because we all struggle in these areas and so I have a a large task to do this morning. Normally I like to have three points. Today I want to go with four. Warning, the second point is half the message or more, the second one. So the first, third, and fourth combined are not really as long as the second one is by itself. 
Four thoughts. You ready? Here we go. I want to propose to you that a pure heart has sincere motives. A pure heart has sincere motives. If you have a cake, I like cake. If you have a cake, you have a mixture of a lot of ingredients. You don't have something that's pure. If Tropicana tries to sell you a carton of pure orange juice, what's in there? Orange juice, what else? Just orange juice, right? So we don't take like one-third water and kind of dilute it down so we can sell it for cheaper? It's hard to get orange juice. No, if you're selling us pure orange juice, you're selling us something. So here's what we're trying to get. When we hear this word pure, so we kind of we know what blessed means, heart is what you just wrote, those five things. What is this pure? Don't over-spiritualize the word pure. We're going to apply it, and it definitely has a spiritual effect. But just think of the word pure as you would in anything else. The word pure, if you're taking notes, means unmixed, undiluted, unmixed, undiluted. The Lord Jesus says that a person who has a pure heart, pure motives, thoughts, feelings, okay, pure desires, a pure will, that is a person that is sincere, unmixed, undiluted. So I could word it this way. The pure in heart person is the person that is selfless. Because the whole world out here, we're all born selfish. We're all born with that, and we have a lot of motives as we go through life. That motivates that, that. Why did you do that activity? Well, I did it for that and that and that and lots of good reasons and some not so good reasons. But what Jesus is saying is the person who is pure, they pretty much, they have like one reason. One reason. They're unmixed. They're undiluted in their motive. And so they're selfless. Self is removed out of it. They're selfless and they lack hypocrisy. They are free from hypocrisy. We could say they don't, the pure in heart do not harbor wrong motives for doing things. So I want to propose to you this morning, the pure in heart will give to the Lord. Someone doesn't give to the Lord, you're not pure in heart, but people can give to the Lord and not be pure in heart. Those who don't give to the Lord, those who don't serve the Lord, they're not pure in heart. They live for themselves. They keep everything for themselves. They're not pure in heart. But even those who serve the, do service for the church and for the Lord's kingdom and those who give, we can still struggle with letting pride or guilt or duty, watch this one, self-approval. Why did you give? Why did you do that service? If anything in you says, boy, I kind of hope someone sees it. I hope someone knows that I gave or knows how much I gave. Or I hope someone sees that I did this or they know how much. If that is in you, then you are lacking purity of heart. You have some mixed in ulterior motives. You may have a good one mixed in there, but it's diluted down with other motives. What Jesus is saying is, I love when I see a person. And by the way, they don't even know it. They're so lost in the giving, so lost in the serving, that it is literally all about the Lord, all about love for them. They don't care about recognition. They truly don't care about it. But we struggle. William Barclay wrote about John Bunyan. You've heard his name, John Bunyan. You ever heard that name? You've heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan lived back in the 1600s. Not only was was he a writer, he was a great preacher. So Barclay says that Bunyan was once told by someone that he had preached well that day. To which Bunyan answered sadly, the devil already told me that. 
as I was coming down the pulpit steps. Ouch. John Bunyan? This is a guy who wrote books about being selfless and living for the Lord. This is a man who went to prison for years for the cause of Christ by his own. It's one thing if someone else come up and says it, but what he's saying is I didn't even have to wait to hear it. Something in me, and yep, they're like, boy, you did a good job today. Yeah, I did, didn't I? What? Please don't let that be the motivation. That's what he's saying. Why do you do what you do? The Bible says the word of God is alive and it's powerful and it's sharp. It divides between soul and spirit. That's one of the reasons I believe we're not just body and immaterial portion. The Bible says it it can discern between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intentions. God knows why you do what you do. Try to be pure. Man, when you feel yourself, I'm doing this. I think I'm doing a good thing, doing the right thing, but I'm doing it for the wrong reason. Spend time with God and peel that wrong reason away. Secondly and quickly. Number two, a pure heart makes war on sin. A pure heart has sincere motives, but a pure heart, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A pure heart, really, guys, it makes war on sin. Now, I'm going to cover two things on this point. These are probably the two key texts we're about to look at. Uh, I won't spend long in them, but go to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, if you'll join me there. Acts 15, I don't know if you've ever heard of this thing called the Jerusalem Council. It's a very important event in church history. So the church is born in Acts chapter 2. Some 20 years later in A.D. 59 is where we're about to read. A.D. 59, and boy, I'd love to go into a lot of background here, but I don't have time. So here's the background. I'm going to give it quick. You ready? So 20 years earlier, Jesus has ascended, gone back to heaven after having died on the cross for our sins. The day of Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit's poured out. They're all Jewish. They're all Jewish. Gentiles that were born Gentiles became Jews, and that's why they're there in Jerusalem at a feast. They hear about it. The church has sprung up. For probably seven, eight, maybe nine years, the church is pretty much bottled up in Jerusalem with Jews. Eventually, it leaks out. And by Acts chapter 8, you have half Jews and half Gentiles becoming Christians. But by Acts chapter 10, the first one of us is brought into the kingdom without becoming Jewish. And then eventually, we know this man named Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle goes on this missionary journey with Barnabas. And lots of Gentiles are coming to Christ. They come back from that. They they left Antioch, and they go out, and they come back, and they give a great report. But while they were gone, some things started happening. Some false teachers from Jerusalem were going around saying that when you lead Gentiles to faith in Jesus, you need to make sure that they get circumcised, they're males, and you need to make sure that they keep the law of Moses like we Jews. Have you told them about the law of Moses? Have you told them about the Sabbaths? Have you told them about the dietary laws? And Paul, he holds firm. You don't have to have those things. You can go to heaven simply by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Well, there's a big fight and there's a debate. Finally, Paul and Barnabas said, let's go down to Jerusalem, call all the leading people of the church together, and let's settle this once and for all. And so, look at verse number 6. Read, if you would, with me down to verse 11. The apostles and elders, the first church conference in the history of the church in Jerusalem. they got to settle this issue about salvation. What does it take to be saved? The apostles, 12, and the elders 
were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, lots of debate, Peter stood up. Everybody would respect, respect Peter. Him and James would be the key people in the city of Jerusalem. That's where this is held, and that's kind of the springboard. They're looking at that as the mother church, the original church. And so Peter stood up, everybody would respect, and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, he's talking about 20 years, or actually he's talking about probably several years before this, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, Peter's saying, I didn't choose to do this. In essence, if you read it in chapter 10, he almost goes kicking and screaming. God has to kind of manipulate and work Peter to the point where he would do what he's about to say. Brothers, you know in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. The man's name was Cornelius, his whole house. Peter preached the gospel to him. These Gentiles heard it. He got to the point where he said, if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus, you receive remission of sins. There was no altar call. There was no worded prayer. They're literally sitting there listening to Peter preach that if you'll put your faith in Jesus, then you'll be saved. They're literally hearing him, and they do it inside. They put their faith and trust in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit falls on them in the moment. And so Peter's recalling that. And he says, you'll remember by my mouth the Gentiles heard the word of the gospel and believed. And God, here we go, here's our word, who knows the heart. God bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. What Peter's saying, I was there, I preached at, uh, in chapter 2. I preached on the day of Pentecost. I was there when the Holy Spirit came down in the upper room and we were filled with the Holy Ghost and we spoke in tongues. I saw it there. I saw it in chapter 10 in Cornelius' house. I saw both. And so verse 8 again. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, we Gentiles. And he, God, made no distinction between us and them. Here's our line. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Peter's calling these Gentile converts disciples. That neither our fathers. Why are you trying to make these Gentiles do things that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we, he's saying we Gentiles, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Now, did you catch it? Peter says, how does it happen? We preach the word, people hear the word, verse number eight, uh, 7 finishes, and they believe. Verse number 9 finishes by saying, God having cleansed their hearts by faith. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is key. Blessed are the pure in heart. When does this happen? I want to propose to you. The ultimate. So when does a dirty, complex, filthy, again, complex, not simple, complex, lots of things in that heart. How does a dirty, complex heart become pure? Here it is. The ultimate purifying of a sinner's heart is a one-time act of God. Where do you get that from, Jeff? Verse number 9. And God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's called eternal life. What happens? The grace of God that is mentioned in verse number 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace. Grace literally means gift, guys. What happens as God gives a gift? The gift of God's grace is he gives we sinners a brand new 
and a brand new clean heart, inner being, whole new thoughts, desires, appetites, will, feelings. Have you ever had that happen in your life? Ever been a day where when you look back, you, you, you see that something happened. My thoughts started changing. It's like a whole new me is inside. Your thoughts started changing. Your feelings, your desires. Well, that wasn't there before. New motives, a new will. I will do this now with my life. If you're sitting there saying, that's never happened in my life, it's because you've never been saved. You're on your way to hell. You need to trust Christ today. You take a huge risk by, by getting in your car and leaving this property today. You've never been saved if that's never happened. Now, in tying back to today's text, here's the even better news. This initial one-time cleansing, ultimate cleansing, we could call it. You say, so I'll never sin again? No, we're getting ready to talk about that. This ultimate cleansing at the moment of salvation ultimately guarantees that a Christian will see God unfiltered in heaven. You will see God unfiltered. Here Jesus is telling us, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Jesus is basically saying, you're going to see God and you've never seen anything like it. Well, haven't we seen God when we see you, Jesus? You're seeing a veiled representation of God. Oh, you're going to see me once you put your faith and trust in me and let me pay for your sins. Then that guarantees you will see God unfiltered in heaven but you'll have to be changed to do it. I said two passages. Go quickly. And you're going to want to leave a marker at this next one. 1 John chapter 3. Flip over there. 1 John chapter 3. A very important text. 1 John chapter 3. Because this passage has pretty much everything of this sixth beatitude that we're looking at. A pure heart makes war on sin. It's a one-time act of God by which we get a pure heart. So are we done? Watch verse 1 of chapter 3. John writes, see, he's talking to Christians, see what kind of love the Father has for us, has given to us. Oh, I know God loves me. He gives me food and clothing and he lets us do some good things. True, but watch. See, really consider, stop and think, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Guys, that's huge. You want to know how much God loves you, Christian? He lets you be called. Okay, he calls us his children. No, 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 it's more than that. We're not just called the children of God. John says, and so we are. And you may be thinking, I don't see anything happen. I can't tell the difference between me and anyone else. I can't tell the difference between me externally and some. And back in the time when I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I don't see that anything happened. John answers that. He says the reason why the world does not know us and why you wouldn't recognize yourself as being a child of God externally, here it is, is that it did not know him. What he's saying, guys, Jesus literally walked among men, mankind as God, but no one knew it. I pictured Joseph getting young Jesus to help him deliver a table and chairs to somebody's house in Bethlehem. Hey, yeah, if you'll just put it right there. Thank you. What's this young man's name? Oh, that's Jesus. That's your boy? It sure is. Yeah, that's God. I'm sorry? Who's this guy? Well, that's Jesus, but that's, that's God. They would think he's lost his mind. No one saw anything special when they looked at Jesus, John is playing on that. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Watch verse 2. 
Beloved, we are God's children now. That's settled. You're already God's children if you put your faith in Christ. But he goes further. And what we will be, we are God's children now, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Something's going to happen. We shall be like him. We're not yet like him fully yet. Why will we, we be like him? There's something huge in this word, this next word. Because we shall see him as he is. You've never seen him as he is. When you see him as he is, because of that, you will be like him. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 takes it to another level. And so our last thought on verses 1 and 2 was that cleansing, that moment, guarantees you are going to see the unfiltered version of God. You will see that one day. And so you say, great, it's a one-time act of God. We're done. We're going to see God one day. That's what pure in heart means. But verse 3 takes it to, to another step. John says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What does that mean? Hang with me. One time act of God, put my faith in Christ. He cleansed my heart, gave me a whole new, new inside, new inner person. Because of that, I'm guaranteed that I'm going to see God one day unfiltered in heaven. But now Jesus says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Write this down. So yes, it's a one time act of God. But in another sense, Purity of heart is also a lifelong pursuit. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Purity in heart is a lifelong pursuit. I'm going I'm to say something that's a little radical. You may disagree. I think this text bears it out. All genuine Christians, not people who fake, not people who just raise their hand that they're a Christian, but they've never really trusted Jesus. Or they say they've trusted Jesus, but they really kind of doubt that he really saved them. Do you, are you really trusting that's not a true Christian. Well, I'm not really sure. He probably hasn't saved me, but I said a prayer one time. No. All genuine Christians who expect to see God, who desire to see God, go through life purifying themselves from daily sin. Why? I believe one of the reasons is because we want to please Him, but also I want to see more of Him in my life. I know I'm not going to see Him in this life physically, but I don't want to wait to heaven to see God. I want to go ahead and start seeing more of God working in my life now. And so I want to purify my life of daily sin. If someone's not doing that, then they're not a Christian. All Christians, you say, what if we're struggling? Yeah, you're going to struggle, but Christians struggle. Non-Christians don't struggle with sin. Christians struggle with sin. Non-Christians just give up and go with it. Christians struggle sin. The pure in heart wage war on sin. I want you to think with me. I'm going to go through this fast as I can. But sin comes at us in all kinds of ways. Watch. You've heard these. So some sins, we do something. Other sins are sins because we're not doing anything. You understand that? Everybody knows there's some things we're supposed to do, and when we don't do them, that's sin. We call those sins of omission. These over here, when we're doing something, those are called sins of commission. So y'all have heard that. But then when we factor in, so they're doing something, and these are sins because we're not doing something. Then we factor in, wait a minute, 
Some sin is done with the body externally, and then some sin is done internally, and the body's not engaged. You, you can see the external body sinning. You may not see the internal sinning, but there's still sin. And so when we think of we're committing acts of sin or we're omitting what we're supposed to be doing, and then we factor in some sin is external and some is internal, all of a sudden we have two times two, put those together, we now have four categories of sin. So we could put sin in categories like I'm getting ready to do. Say, so what does this mean? You have external doing sin, and then you have external not doing things. Sin, sin. And then you have internal doing something that is sinful, and then you have internal I'm not doing something, and that makes it sinful. Now that you're thoroughly confused, let me fly through some examples. Examples of external sins of commission. We're doing it, and you can see it. These are the ones that we most identify with usually. It's things like this. Stealing, adultery, murder, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, gluttony, rage, Drunkenness, violence, dishonoring parents, abortion, doing the abortion, asking for the abortion, cheating, addictions, gossip, verbal abuse, blasphemy, swearing, bragging, lying, slandering, complaining. You know, yeah, that's a lot of sin. 22 things, and I cut the list off. I had to delete had nine pages of note. Got to get it down to four pages, right? Got to delete somewhere. We cut it back. These are, anybody can see this. We do it on the outside. These are actions. Watch. There's internal sins of commission. Worry. You can't see it. Anger. It may turn to rage. Bitterness. What you doing? I was eating a sandwich. Is that all? Well, I'm being bitter on the inside, but you can't see that. I'm eating a sandwich and being bitter. What you doing? Ouch. Hatred, lust, they're talking to you, but she thinks they're just having a conversation, but he's lusting. Jealousy, pride, greed, discontent, coveting, judging. People don't see that, but you're doing something. What about omission? Well, you have external not doing. Lots of not in this category. Not sharing our faith, not praying, not giving to the Lord, not worshiping God, not reading his word, not warning a brother or sister who's in sin, not giving thanks, not resting, not giving to the poor, not meeting with God's people, not doing our best at work, not doing our best at school, laziness, neglecting family. We're not doing things. Those are the externals we should be doing, but we're not. Those are external sins of omission. And then we have internal sins of omission. Are you already filling the blanks here? What we should be doing, but we're not. This has the word lack a lot, or not again. Lack of love. That's sin. That's the biggest sin of all. Lack of love. That's the one we commit most often. Not forgiving. Not being thankful. Maybe even said thankful things, but really the heart wasn't engaged or we never say thank you because it's just not in us. That's sin. We're not thankful. Unbelieving. 
lack of joy, lack of delighting in God, not casting our cares on the Lord, not repenting, not being patient. We could go on and on. I just gave you 55 types of sins in four different categories. And why did you say all those, Jeff? Because the pure in heart hates sin so much, it wages war on sin. But here's what we like to do, we human beings. We love to not just categorize sin, we love to rank sin. You got the big ones. Murder, adultery, homosexuality. Those, those are level, those are grade four. Grade four sins. Those are the really bad ones. Meanwhile, if we're not careful, we'll humanly think sins like pride, envy, discontent, selfishness, judgmentalism. That's probably a grade two. We're going to make that judgmental. They're grade two. But they're not murderers. They're not adulterers. They're not committing homosexuality. Worry. Worry. Come on, guys. This is meant. Worry. That's definitely level one sin. That's how we think. Hey, you don't need to be worrying about your worry because it's not a sin. Oh, it is a sin, but it's not a bad one, so don't be worried about your worry. Oh, that's great to know. That's one less thing to worry about. Okay. So, Jeff, are you trying to say that all of this is in the same category? All sin has the same seriousness. Watch. No, some sin is more serious than other sins. So if we have murder and hatred... They're very closely connected. I am going to admit murder is more serious than hate because it takes someone's life. Adultery is more serious than lust because it ends up in an action, draws someone into that. So though we may say, yes, some sin is more serious, what we cannot do is say that some sins are not serious. So here's our point. All sin is serious. Some is more serious all sin is serious. All sin. Jeff, where do you get that from? James chapter 2. I think it will be on the screen. James chapter 2. Let me find it. I like to read it here if I can. James chapter 2. You've heard this before. For whoever keeps the whole law, I don't murder. I don't, I don't, I don't commit adultery, fornication. I'm not addicted. I don't get drunk. I don't use all those bad words. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And so what the Lord would say is that my law is one thing. Have you ever broken God's law? Well, I don't break all those laws. Have you ever broken the law? It's one connected thing. And so, guys, what I'm going to propose to you is that the pure heart wages war on sin. And God categorizes sin differently than we do. We can put it in categories, but God, if he's going to rank sin, here's how he would rank sin. I'm going to give you two words. Here it is. Unknown and known. So not, though we can categorize them properly, accurately, putting them in these four categories, what we can't do is say those external commission ones, those are the really bad ones, and the internal omission ones, those are kind of level one, not too bad. No, you can't do that. God doesn't do that. God ranks sin differently. God ranks them as Unknown sins and known sins. Go with me if you would. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse number 12. Look at it. Who can discern his errors? So I want to ask you real quick, of all your belief system, let's say you have a thousand beliefs. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe Jesus is God. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. 
And you go on and on. You may say, I believe in whatever. you could. A thousand belief systems. A thousand things. Which one of your belief systems are the erroneous ones? You say, none of my beliefs are erroneous. Oh, yeah, you have some, and I do too. We just don't know what they are. Who can discern his errors? Watch what the psalmist says in his prayer. He's talking to God. Have you ever done this? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I'm admitting, God, I have hidden faults. I don't even know what they are. Would you please declare me innocent of those? And then he switches gears, verse number 12. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. God, I know I have things in my life because 20 years ago I was doing some things I didn't know was wrong then that now I know they are wrong and you've ridded them out of my life. But Lord, I, by that assumption, I still have things in my life. I don't even know that they're there yet and you're going to work on me with that. So please forgive me of my hidden unknown sins. But Lord, forgive me and keep me from my presumptuous kinds of sins. Numbers chapter 15. Flip over there. Numbers 15. Numbers 15. Verse number 28, I believe it is. Yes, verse 28. It's talking about sacrifices. So how does the Lord categorize sin? He has unknown. You have them. You ever confessed? You say, I've never confessed unknown. You ought to. Lord, forgive me of my unknown. Please reveal them to me as you see fit. Verse 28. And the priest... Literally, the verse before talks about a female goat, a female goat, one year old. Why would that be offered? The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake. When he sins unintentionally. So it's more than how we use the word mistake. It is a sin. So he's going to make atonement. The priest is literally making an animal sacrifice. Why? They didn't know it. Something has to be done about it. It still has to be dealt with. When he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Good news. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. For him who is, it's one law, here's what that means. For him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So it's not like two different laws, one for the Israelites and one for the Gentile who happens to be coming through the land. No, one law for both. And then he switches gears, just like the psalmist did. But the person, Christian, listen. But the person who does anything with a high hand, what that means is an arrogant attitude, a presumptuous spirit that says, I know this is wrong, but I don't really care. I'm going to presume upon God's mercy. God will forgive. He has to. Or I'll say 1 John 1, 9 in a little while. Or I'll ask for some forgiveness later. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. How does God qualify sin? How does God rank sin? The sin, you don't even know about it. Yes, it needs dealt with, but God is much more patient with that than the sin that you know about. Psalm 66, 18. Let's have that on the screen. Psalm 66, 18. The psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity, that means sin that I presumptuously, I see it, I know it's there, I allow it, I even protect it. Christian, listen, do you have any of that right now in your life? Is there a sin in your life? You know it is there. You're allowing it to be there. You even in your mind protect it. What the psalmist is saying, by the way, he didn't do it because the Lord heard his prayer. But he's saying, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And so he ridded his life. He made war on sin. 
He made being godly and holy and going after righteousness and pursuing a pure heart a lifelong pursuit. So with that in mind, if you're taking notes, write the following thought and contemplate this with me. A while ago I gave you 55 kinds of sin. A Christian can commit any sin I listed. And if you're sitting there going, oh, well, no, there was one. No, no, that one. A Christian can't do that. Read your Bible. A Christian can commit any sin I listed, but because they have been given a new heart, a new inner being at the moment of salvation, and because a Christian at that moment of salvation receives the very Spirit of God literally living inside of them, something happens. That Christian can never be at peace with the known kind of sin. If you have, if you're a true Christian and you have known sin, and a while ago I said, do you have any known sin? If you have some known sin, you're uncomfortable with it. I'm not saying you don't have it, but you don't like it being there. The unsaved person just moves right on. It doesn't move the needle. With you, it's there. You're aware of it. You're struggling with it. A Christian struggles with sin. The unsaved person just goes with the flow. And I'm going to propose to you, that struggle that a Christian does is proof and evidence that they did receive the one-time act of a new, clean heart. A whole new inner being, new thoughts, desires, feelings, will, motives. So before I leave the second point, I told you it was the long one. I want to invite you, Christians, keep waging war against sin. You can't be comfortable with known sin. So go after it. And this is where we could have like seven points, and I don't have time for seven. So I'm going to give you four. Four quick thoughts. So Jeff, if a pure heart is not just a one-time act, but that one-time act causes us to pursue purity for the rest of our life, then what does that pursuit look like? Four things I would propose, and I go back to 1 John 1, 9. We keep going there. Look at 1 John 1, 9. It must include this, guys. Read this again. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just. He is justified in doing this. He can do this. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse. Talking about pure heart. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Christian, I want to ask you a question. You cannot be comfortable with sin. Known sin. You may have some known sin, but you're going to struggle. You're never going to reach it in this life. You're never going to have that perfect purity. And because of that, knowing that this is literally the first step, if I want to pursue purity, then I need to be confessing my sins. I've got to ask you, what sin have you been confessing? In your head, say the sin you've been confessing right now. Say it in your mind. I know what mine are. Guys, if you're sitting there saying, I can't think of any specific sin, then you're just allowing it. Either that or you're living sinlessly, and I know that's not true. Are you battling? A Christian battles. Do you have something? Maybe 10 years ago you were praying for victory over a different thing, and now God has revealed a new thing in your life, and this is the thing, this is the sin, and you find yourself confessing it again and again. Second one, second thing goes right along with that. Very, very simple, but you need to do it. Psalm 51.10, if you look at the screen, watch what the psalmist says. This is David. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Read it again. Create in me. So I have one time. It's done. I have the ultimate pureness of heart that was given by Christ. 
He's made me over on the inside. I'm a new creature. But now I am, because of that, that spurs me on to be pursuing it. So I'm going to confess sin. And while I'm confessing specific sins, chase that with this literal request. God, I need a new heart. I need new emphasis in a portion of my heart that still loves this particular sin. God, I need you to remake my heart in that area. And then name it. God, please create in me a clean heart. Don't just forgive me of specific sins. Start remaking me all over in that area. Third thought. Jeff, got any tips, got any pointers that will help us in our pursuit of purity? Psalm 119. You know we're going to go there, and I know everybody's going to hear this and say, preacher has the same points every week. They all do. They all say the same thing. Right? Pray, confess. What's this next one? Oh, I can guess it. You're right. What's the psalmist say? Verse 9. You confess your sin. It's gone. You're cleansed. You're asking and begging God to give you a whole new heart. Lord, keep me from it. So here's a tip. The psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? What if God really does cleanse me? I am tired of confessing the same old sin. How can a young man keep his way pure? Very simple. By guarding it according to your word. And the psalmist says, with my whole heart, I seek you. My whole heart, my pure heart, my oneness of heart, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. How do you do, guys? It, there's no shortcuts. Pray and confess. Ask God to give you a brand new heart, a clean heart in that area. Strengthen your heart in that area. And then go to the Word of God that really does fortify us. The Word of God is inspired and it's profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and watch this, for instruction in righteousness. God, I need you to help me get victory over that, and you're going to strengthen my spirit. One of the ways you're going to do it is by implementing your word specifically. Now, I want everybody else quickly go Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. This would really take a whole message. I'm going to throw it out. You say, I'm going to try to really pursue purity in my life this week. I'm going to confess my sins. I'm going to pray God to give me a clean heart. And I am going to spend time in God's word, literally washing and renewing my mind on a regular basis. I call it recentering because this world constantly wants to get me out of balance. My own nature takes me out of balance. So I'm going to keep coming back to the word of God and let it recenter me. Now, Colossians chapter 3. This only applies to Christians. If then you have been raised with Christ. I have. I was in him on the cross by faith. I was in him in the tomb by faith. And when he rose again, I was in him when he rose again to a new kind of life. So the Colossians are told, Christians there, if then you have been raised with Christ. You say, that's me. What do I need to do? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Start seeking those things. Set your minds on things. So literally, stop Loving these things, set your mind on these other things. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Say, one of the reasons I've been struggling, God, I'm confessing this sin. I'm asking you for a clean heart in that area. Lord, I'm going to spend some time in your word getting recentered. And then where this starts tempting me to go over there, I am now going to spend extra time literally focusing on Christ at the right hand of the Father in the words of God, literally meditating, not just reading, but I'm going to meditate and contemplate. Number three. By the way, can we agree on this? It's easier to change our behavior than to change our heart. But if you'll do those four things, your heart will change. I know about the one-time thing, but it's a pursuit. God will do it. Third, 
A pure heart is single in its focus. A pure heart is single in its focus. That's literally what the word pure means. It means single. Pure gold has gold. And most of our gold here is not pure because it would be weakened. So they have to put some other things in it to strengthen it. So I'm going to propose to you this morning. I told you we would hit several passages. I'm going to throw these out quickly just to make a point not to dig in on them. Do you know that the Bible is very, very clear what a Christian's single folk, what is a pure heart? A pure heart is one that's unmixed with wrong motives. A pure heart is one that makes war on sin. But the main thing, this really goes back to Colossians, the main thing that helps them make war on sin is they don't have time for sin because that heart is so focused and single, unmixed, undiluted on one main thing. Its passion is one main thing. What if our passion, what if your passion was what the Bible says it should be? You say, where does the Bible say what our one passion should be? It's all through the Bible. I had to delete. I'll throw the following at you. Classic, classic passage of the whole Bible. You're about to read it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, say, what should be our passion? What should be our focus? What should be our pure desire? Our pure, unmixed, unadulterated, one desire. What what are we supposed to be after, Pastor Bartlett? What are we supposed to be chasing, Jeff? Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I have not lived up to that verse one day of my life, but that's what I'm supposed to be chasing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So does that mean there's no room for love for anyone else? Can't love father, mother, children? Yes, but all of those come under this love for God. They're an extension of our love for the Lord. Love the Lord your God. That's your driving desire. That's your passion. Can we have Psalm 37.4? Look at this. You say, wait a minute. Didn't we talk about this one just three weeks ago? Here we are again. What's our passion? What's supposed to be our one single desire? Delight yourself in the Lord. And when you do, he will give you the desires of your heart. Make the Lord your delight. You say, but I delight in these things. Delight yourself in the Lord. Really pursue him. Make him your delight. And if you will, as we said three weeks ago, God will will reward you with himself. If you delight in him and he wants to reward you, he's going to give you himself. I'm going to include today Hebrews 11.6. Look at this. I believe this is almost the New Testament version of Psalm 37. Watch it. Here it goes. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe. Here's two things. Say, I want to draw near to God. I need to be doing this. You must believe two things. He exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. What is the reward? What is the reward? If people seek the Lord and because they're seeking the Lord, he's going to reward them. What is the reward? I'm picturing... Young girl, young guy, out on Friday night. Hey, what you doing? Hey, I'm trying to get a boyfriend or girlfriend. Okay, I see you're out pursuing, seeking a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You know what? Because I see you seeking a relationship, I'm going to reward you. Really? Yeah, here's $5. Like, what? Because you're seeking, here's $5. You'd be like, no. How about you reward me with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? That's what I really want. That's what I'm thinking. The person, God is saying, if you'll seek me, 
If you will seek me, Christian, you say, I don't have time. If you will seek me, it doesn't work. If you will seek me, I will reward you. But you have to believe. I will reward you. You delight in me. I'll reward you. I'll give you the desires of your heart. Go, if you would, back to Matthew 5, but jump two pages ahead. You're in your Bible, Matthew 5. Look at Matthew chapter 6 this time. Two verses. What's our pursuit? What's, what are we supposed to be going after? What's supposed to be our one desire? Matthew 6, verse 24. It's all through the Bible. No one can serve two masters. Oh, no, I have two bosses. Really? Yeah, I work for this one in the morning, and I work for that one in the afternoon. What happens when the one says, I want you to stay late? Oh, no, yeah, I can't do that because I have to be in the second job. So the second job's your real master. Oh, uh, well, uh, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What's Jesus talking about? You cannot love God and money. What are you going after? I want the Lord and I want money. You can't have it both ways. Jeff, are you trying to say, is Jesus trying to say that having money is bad? Absolutely, money is not bad. And if you have a gift and a talent to make it and use it for the kingdom of God, then you need to be using that gift and talent to do it. But your goal cannot be, I want money and all that it gives, and I want God and all that it gives. I'm going to tell you, if you go down that, and we'll eventually preach this later, those are going to conflict, and you're going to give in to one. Because at some point, money, if it's your God, it's going to say, hey, this whole church thing, you know what I've realized? It's killing our opportunity to make more money. This whole getting up early in the morning and reading your Bible and spending time with God, we could be spending that time with more work. Or God's going to say, hey, I want you to take time before you go make money. I want you to spend time with it. I can't. Or you're going to have to pick one. Jesus says you can't do both. What are you going to pick? You know the right answer. Chapter 6, look at verse 33. Seek you first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, literally what God is saying is seek God, seek his kingdom first. What about all my necessities? All these things will be added to you. God will take care of those things. And then two more passages, very familiar ones. We actually hit these two Wednesday nights ago in our adult service. 1 Corinthians 6. I know you're familiar with it, but taste it. Jeff, what's our driving desire? What are we supposed to be pursuing? Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. Verse 19. Hear it, Christian. Listen. Do you not know that your body is the temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So you're possessed. Whom you have from God, you're not your own. There's the line. Christian here would say, what am I supposed to be going after? You're not your own. You were bought. So you're a made thing. Here it is. You're a made thing. God created you. God bought you. God possesses you. You are not your own. You say, is this life not mine to live? No, it's not yours to live. Man, that Jeff is a killjoy. Jeff is a killjoy when he starts preaching these types of things. Can he not just read the verse and let's cover it all in one week and let's move on to how we're salt and light? No. God literally says, I want you after one thing. One thing. Be consumed with it. Verse 19 finishes. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God. So glorify God. What about me? Glorify God. It's not about you. Well, that's a terrible life. Oh, no, no. Colossians chapter 1 is our last passage today. Colossians 1. Well, we will go back to 1 John in just a moment, but it's a repeat, a quick one. I get 
conscience smote me when I remembered that. Verse 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. Like, what do you mean all things? All things. In heaven, he made it. On earth, he made it. Visible, if you can see it, he made it. Invisible, if you can't see it, but it's there, he made it. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's not about you. You were made for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? Why is all the point of everything? What's the point of the whole Bible? What's the point of us being created? That in everything he might be preeminent. That's the point of the whole thing, that Christ would be preeminent over all in our life. What if we made our pursuit, love the Lord with all of our heart, delight in the Lord, seek the Lord like Hebrews 11 says, serving God and not money, seeking God and his kingdom first, glorifying God in our body and in our spirits, making Christ preeminent. What if that really was our desire? Man, Jeff is a killjoy. He's like making no fun for us. Can I ask you a quick question? Answer on the inside. What do you desire more than God? Be honest. I have to be honest with myself. There's good days and there's bad days. There's bad parts of the days and there's better parts of the days. And I'm supposed to be the preacher here. I struggle. The usual culprits of trying to love things more than God are these. Wealth, health. A lot of you don't even think about health. When you lose it, I just want to be healthy again. I'd do that. I'd love to have that. Man, we didn't know how good we had it. Wealth, health, security, leisure. I just need a break. I just want to do something fun. Fame. And this goes, our mind goes there and it goes there. Get a free moment and we just run there. Power, relationships, Guys, I'm not trying to be a killjoy, I promise. I told our our crowd on Wednesday night a few weeks ago, I know what season we're in. I am not a pastor who says, boy, if you take a vacation, you need to feel guilty. If you take a day trip, if you go play a round of golf, you go see a movie, or if you go fishing or camping or hunting or shopping, yes, shopping, they're a bad person. No, those are gifts from God. You say, hold on, time out. Did you just say vacation and shopping and fishing and hunting and camping and all that? That, That's like gifts from God? It is. But it's not an end to itself. Don't make it an end to itself. What if your heart's desire was, Lord, I want to love you and pursue you and seek you and glorify you and you be preeminent. And along the way, look at all these good things. And what if while you're doing it, you bring God into those good things? I told him the other day, what if we did these and came back from these activities literally more in love with God than when we did the thing? What if you could go on a vacation and it's not like, Lord, I'll check back in with you. Thank you for letting us go. I'll check back in after a week. What if we come back from the week of vacation more in love with God than when we left? We, like, involved him. We did it in the context of the creator who made it possible. What if you went and played a round of golf and literally by the end of the round of golf you love God more than when you left? You say, that's impossible. No, it is not. You say, if you saw the way I play, you would know it is impossible to come back because it puts me in the flesh. No, then you had a horrible round of golf. And if even if you broke par, but you never brought God into it, you wasted your time. Helped your handicap, but you wasted your time. Never let them take you away from God. And then the last thought is very brief. The pure in heart shall see God. 
pure in heart shall see God. I said we would go back one more time, 1 John 3. So I'll leave you with this thought this morning. We've had six Beatitudes. Six Beatitudes. This one gives the greatest promise. Hey, what about inheriting the earth and being in the kingdom of God and we're going to be comforted and we're going to be satisfied and we're going to receive mercy? Those are all wonderful. They've all been pointing to this one. They're all pointing to number six. They shall see God. Look at verse one again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Would you write this note? It has two parts to it. The Christian's heart. Christian, this is good news. The Christian's heart. You say, that's me. It will be made perfectly pure. When? When they see God in heaven. The Christian's heart will be made perfectly pure when they see God in heaven. That is like two promises for the price of one. They're included in that. This brings the beatitude back into focus. I don't even understand it all. All I know is that there's something to do with when I see. Now, I know as I am right now, I can't see God. So God's going to change something. He's going to give me a glorified body. But something even further happens that's connected to when I see Christ. Christ is basically telling us in Matthew 5, you think you've seen me, you have never seen me. I imagine every time a person comes to heaven, it delights God and the Son and the Spirit as they look at the new one. And the new person is like, oh, got another one. And they start thinking, bless their hearts down there, they're sad. And they're planning a few, whoa, whoa, yes, got another one. Tried to tell them. They don't ever understand. They can't. If we got an inkling of what this promise is, we're going to see God. I'll go ahead and tell you. When you see him, based on the Bible, I'll tell you the first three things going to pop in your mind. Because the same ones with everybody. Whoa. He is so holy. Not just righteous and sinless. I've never seen anyone like him. Holy angels who are holy themselves who have never sinned. They say of him, holy, holy, holy. They can't stop saying it. You're going to see him one day, Christian. This matters everything. Secondly, you're going to realize, I don't know what order, but you're going to notice his holiness, you're going to notice his beauty, and you're going to notice his power. Wow. You say, then that sums up God. Oh, no, no. The glory of God is the sum of all of his attributes. I don't know that you'll look at him and know that's an eternal being. Maybe you will, but we'll spend eternity seeing and knowing we're designed to do this. It is meant for us. Now realize, I throw those things out, and in this room there's some people. That note that was up there, the Christian's heart will be made perfectly pure when they see God in heaven. And some people, that literally doesn't move the needle of your emotions. I'm going to tell you three reasons why, and I'll close. One reason, you're not a Christian, and that doesn't apply to you, and you don't need to get too excited about it because it's not you until you put your faith in Christ. If you never put your faith in Christ, you will never have a pure heart. You will never see God as he is. You'll see another version of God at the great white throne judgment. You don't want to see that. You'll never see this glorified 
God. Second reason why this may not move the needle of your emotions is you may be a Christian here today, but you don't really think of the promises of God as being actual like they're really going to happen. May or may not, so it doesn't move the needle of your emotions. Third reason, some people sitting here this morning are like, okay, that sounds nice. Jeff's again really excited about something. What's the real point? We don't understand what this means. Christ knew what he was saying. Paul saw the third heaven and it changed his life. He could never be settled in this life again. This world held nothing for that man once he saw the third heaven. Boy, if we knew, it would change everything. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Christian, saint, child of God, Say, Jeff, I've been really struggling. I, I, don't, I don't see anything fabulous in my, my life, in me right now. Did you put your faith and trust in Christ? If you did, then you know the word of God is true. You have to see God unfiltered in heaven. And your heart will be made perfectly pure. Stay with the struggle. Like right now, let me encourage you, Christian. Keep confessing your sin. Keep pouring out your heart to the Lord. Literally ask Him. Maybe you want to do this right now. Maybe some Christian right now, you need to go and say, I have some known sin. Cherishing it. I know it's there. I've allowed it. I protect it. Name it to the Lord. God, I hate that. Please remove it from me. Lord, cleanse me of that. I'm confessing my sin. Go further. God, would you give me a clean heart? Renew a right spirit within me. I mean, Christian, just submit, commit, not dutifully, but wisely, hungrily. God, I really want a clean heart, and I want to pursue righteousness. And so, Lord, this week, today, I'm going to start spending time in your word. I need to be kept pure. And, Lord, I'm going to set aside some time every day where I set my affection on things above because this world is strong in its pull pursue righteousness perfect righteousness is coming perfect purity is coming you will have a single uncomplex life one day you'll love him you'll glorify him you will delight in him go ahead and get a head start now if you're not a Christian yet I want to invite you very simply I'm about to pray why don't you do this? I invite you. You can do this. Right now, God, I'm a sinner. I confess my sin and my sinfulness. Lord, I don't understand it all. I'm talking to God. You don't talk to me. Talk to God in your soul and spirit right now. God, I've heard that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. I believe it. I believe it. And God, I've heard that his death was enough to pay for all my sin, even the sin I've not yet committed. And Lord, you said if we'll ask you to save us, that you will do it. You have to do it because your word is at stake, your reputation. You will save. God, you said whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You said if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved. I believe you. I'm going to take you up on that right now. 
person, if you're struggling with your salvation, why don't you right now say, God, would you save me from my sins? Jesus, I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Did you ask him? He can't lie. He has to do it if you mean it. If you meant that, I dare you go the next step and just say, God, thank you for saving me. I believe you just saved me. I meant it. God, I ask you to save me. You did it. Thank you. Father, Lord, would you start a work in me? My heart's very divided all through the day. I struggle. And Lord, I'm pastoring a group of people that struggle. Our leadership struggles. We're battling. Lord, let us delight in you. Would you show up when we seek you? Let us find you. Let you be the reward of our delight. And Lord, we'll seek you more. Lord, I pray the longer we live and the longer we serve you that we'll become more and more pure in our motives. Let this congregation become more and more pure. God, develop in us a desire, a hunger and a thirst that's just insatiable. That we hate sin and we're going to confess it and forsake it. And we're going to fortify our souls with your word and obey you. Lord, make us pleasing. That's why you made us. Let us fulfill our purpose in Christ's name.